Uh, if you're new with us, my name is Johnny Pereira. It's so good to have you here with us, and I have the privilege of being the lead pastor here, and so thankful for the staff and the elders uh, that help direct and lead this church. And so it's a privilege to be up here and to share God's word for you. We are in our third week in this series that we have entitled Savior. And what we have really mentioned every week is the reality that all of us have a Savior. All of us are looking to someone or something to be a Savior, to be that thing that saves us from what we believe is danger. And so if you're here today and, and you're like, man, I, I never would have thought I would have been at a church and my friend invited me or I was over across the street pumping gas and saw the sign for the church and I just felt like I was supposed to come today and you're here today and you've never placed your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I'm glad you're here today because here's what I believe and what I know God wants you to hear today. Is that the person or the thing that you've been looking to as your Savior can't be that. But there is one, and his name is Jesus, who loved you enough to, came, to come and to live for you and to die for you and to be risen for your sins so that today can be the day of your salvation and you can walk out of these doors different than when you walked in. You can walk out knowing that you have a Savior, capital S. If you're here and you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then you're probably like me and often from time to time I can get sidetracked and place uh, my thoughts, my gaze to something that is not my Savior, but can easily, by my choices and by my, dis, by my lifestyle, can look to that person or that thing to be my Savior. And so we in this series have been walking on this journey with Jesus during this last week of his earthly ministry before it culminates at the cross and with his resurrection, really looking at Jesus who is our Savior and looking at the events that have happened in this last holy week of his life. And we find ourselves now in this next place of Jesus' life. And so if you turn in your Bibles to Matthew 26, we're going to look at verses 36 through 56. And as you're turning there, let me just make mention of something that you probably already know. Uh, some of you may be reading through uh, a one-year Bible plan. And uh, I'm not myself doing it that way, but some of you maybe are. And in my quiet time, I'm in First Samuel and just walking slowly through that. But you may be in a one-year Bible reading plan. You're like, I've never read through the Bible before and I want to do that. And that's awesome. And have you found this already? I'm sure you probably have already gone past this, but remember when you hit Leviticus? You're like, man, Lord, I need to hear from you today. And you're like, man, <laughs> what was that? Right? And at the same time, we know that every word in God's word is from God. And so we understand that. We know that. So we almost feel guilty being like, man, Lord, I really needed something other than the type of this that was supposed to be for this. And you come to passages of scripture like that in, in, in God's word and you're you're like, man, I know it's God's word, but it doesn't resonate as much as maybe some other passages of God's word that may be some of your favorites. And there's also passages of scripture that you can, that you're reading and you're in God's word and you're like, wow, that's, that's a sobering passage of scripture. And really what we're going to look at today in Matthew 26, verses 36 through 56, is probably one of the most sobering passages of scripture arguably next to Jesus 
when he's on the cross that you'll find in all of God's Word. Because it really peers into and sheds light on Jesus' emotions and the weight of what he was carrying on his way to the cross. See, in this passage of Scripture, by now it's probably midnight on the Thursday of Passover week. And Jesus knows in just a matter of hours, he's going to be on the cross. Charles Spurgeon, who is called the Prince of Preachers, he pastored in the late 1800s, probably the most famous Baptist preacher in all of England. Like, in that picture of him, like, of, isn't that just like a boss picture? Like, like, that's a manly dude. But he said this about this passage of Scripture. He says, here we come to the holy of holies of our Lord's life on earth. This is a mystery like that which Moses saw when the bush burned with fire and was not consumed. And no man can rightly expound such a passage as this. It is a subject for prayerful, heartbroken meditation more than for human language. In other words, this passage is heavy because it displays the heaviness of what our Savior was feeling right before he goes to the cross. And so the title of the message is this, is simply this, A Holy Moment. Because I believe that's what we're going to look at in these verses, is this is a holy moment that we get to peer into between our Savior Jesus and God His Father. And so here's the idea that I want us to really see in this passage of Scripture that we'll be able to clearly see from the Word. And I'm going to say it and then I'm going to ask us to pray. It's this. Your Savior was the perfect example of submission to the will of God. There's an importance to that sentence because it says perfect example. That Jesus, our Savior, your Savior, my Savior, was our perfect example of what it looks like to submit to the will of the Father. Now, here's what I want you to pray as I pray out loud. I'm not naive enough to think that every one of us haven't come into these doors today with something that we are struggling to submit to the will of our Father. And so what I want you to do is I want you to think about that thing. And I want you to ask of the Lord, Lord, would you help me to be obedient to what you're going to say through your word of what it looks like for me to submit to the will of you. God, we ask as we step into this narrative, into this story that really is a holy place. Lord, all of your word is holy. It's your words. But God, this, this piece of Scripture really sheds light helps us understand the weight that you felt before you went to the cross. And Lord, that weight was because of my sin. And that weight was because of the sins of the world, both past, present, and future. And so Lord, as we have come in here today, I'm sure with things that we are struggling to submit to you on, And to say yes to you and no to what we feel. Lord, 
would we allow your word to speak to those areas that we are not right now willing to submit to so that when we walk out of this room, we are saying yes to you in every aspect of our life. And it's in the mighty name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. You know, that, that, that idea, that phrase that we gave that our Savior is the perfect example of submission to the will of God, if we're going to say that and we're going to see that in God's Word, then we need to understand this. This is a phrase that is not new here at Harvest. This is a phrase that we say all the time, that the will of God is what, if you know it? The will of God is what? The Word of God. That's right. The will of God is the word of God. So if I want to know God's will for my life, then I need to be obedient to what God says in his word because this is the revealed will of God. And no one's life illustrates that reality more than Jesus. Because over 30 times in the Gospels, Jesus declares and says that the reason why He has done things a certain way is so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. And so every nuance, every circumstance in his life was done according to the will of God. And we know it was the will of God because he makes reference to the word of God. And so Jesus is the perfect example of that reality that when we say he's our example of submitting to the will of God, we can also say he is our perfect example of what it looks like to submit to the word of God. Because those two are the same thing, and Jesus is always the teacher, is he not? He looks for every opportunity to teach. I mean, Jesus has every right, none of us would argue, for Jesus to be completely focused on himself and what he has to do in this moment. But he looks at this moment not just as something that he is struggling with and that he is going to God for, but he also looks at, looks at it as an example to show his disciples what it looks like to submit to the Lord, even when it's difficult. And can we just be honest today? Like, like you should be, right? You're in church. Could we be honest and transparent today? Submitting to the will of God is rarely easy right? It's really easy. You're like, oh yeah, man, like I'm happy to say no to that. Now for sure in your sanctification and your growth with the Lord, you're saying no to things much easier than you used to. That's part of your growth in the Lord. But my point is, is there's always this battle in our life between what we believe and what we feel. Always. Like there's times in my life where I'm in my quiet time with the Lord and I'm reading God's word and I'm, and I'm praying and even before I get into God's word and this is something that we should do, I just say, Lord, would you show me what you want me to see from your word today? And so you're reading through and you're thinking about the things that are on your mind that you're praying about, that you're worried about, that you're struggling with, whatever it is, and you read that verse and you're like, ugh, why did that have to be there today? Right? Don't leave me alone up here, right? Yeah. And you often are faced with, God, I know, I know this is what you say, but I'm not feeling it right now. And what, that's what I love about this passage of Scripture in Matthew 26, is because you see Jesus having to harmonize what he believes 
in his deity with what he feels in his humanity. And how he reconciles both of those. And so what I want to do this morning is give you three truths from these 20 verses. Three truths about submission to the will of God that Jesus exemplified perfectly. So let's dive into this passage of Scripture in verse 36. Look at it with me. It says this. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. So Gethsemane literally means olive press. So this garden of Gethsemane that maybe some of you have heard about or familiar with, if you've, if you've read God's word for any length of time, this would have been an olive orchard. And it says, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, so you know John oftentimes does this, he doesn't mention himself when he's writing, he's the author of this book, of this gospel, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So really what Jesus does is he tells his disciples to kind of sit probably towards the entrance of the garden, but then he takes his three disciples, which is commonplace in his ministry, like his inner three, Peter, James, and John, and he takes them with him a little bit closer to do what? Look at what it says. And he began to be sorrowful. That word means overwhelmed with sorrow. It just doesn't mean I'm a little sad, but it's like I'm overwhelmed with grief, overwhelmed with sorrow. And then there's that word troubled. So that word troubled even gives more uh, color to what Jesus was feeling because you have that word sorrowful, which means I'm overwhelmed with this. But then you come to trouble, which literally means crushed with anguish. Have you ever been there? Where you're like, you're so sad, like, and you've cried so much, you like have no more tears. Like that word literally, if you've ever been to a junkyard and you've watched a car placed into, into that device that literally crushes it. Just picture that. That's what that Greek word troubled means. It literally means he was crushed with anguish. In verse 38, and it says, and then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful. So he shares this with the inner three. He doesn't try to hide it. He doesn't try to pretend he's okay. And that word sorrowful just again means deeply distressed or overwhelmed with sorrow, even to death. Now here's what you find in the different accounts of the Gospels of this story. You'll find different things that, that bring more color to the story. And in Luke 22:44, though it doesn't say it here, even to death gives the analogy of how much Jesus is struggling because in Luke 22:44 it says that he was sweating great drops of blood. That's not figuratively, that's literally. He's being crushed under the anguish of what? of knowing that he is about to be your sin and my sin. He's doing what God requires to be paid by you and me, which we cannot pay. That's the weight of what Jesus is feeling here. And then look at what it says. He tells Peter, James, and John, remain here and watch and pray with me. See, here's the first truth that I see in here that Jesus demonstrated perfectly in regards to the will, of what it looks like to submit to the will of God. Number one, submission to the will of God is often difficult 
and godly relationships help? They help. And you see Jesus do this, right? He, he looked to his relationships. Notice what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't isolate himself. He doesn't say, hey, all of you disciples, you know, all 11 of you, because Judas, remember, Judas has already gone out from the upper room, so he's not here in the garden. So all 11 of you, like, you all stay here. I'm going to go and pray all by myself. You don't see Jesus do that. Instead, what do you see Jesus do? He brings those closest to, to him along with him. He did not isolate himself. What did he do? He invited others to pray with him. That's what that word watch means. It means to stay awake and pray. See, our tendency, this is what's shocking often about myself and our tendency, really, all of us, is that when we seem to be going through the darkest things or the hardest things, what is our tendency? Our tendency is not to run to those who love us, but our tendency is to run away from those who will love us and care for us. Maybe some of you are even here and you're like, man, when I think about it, when I was going through something the hardest, that's when I actually stopped going to church. Like, where is so-and-so? I haven't seen them in a while. Oh, I heard that they're going through something difficult. And you're like, well, why aren't they here? That's when they should be here most. But see, the enemy and his minions, they love to whisper lies in our, into our minds and say, no, 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 you need to isolate yourself. Because so often we are so ridden with shame that we are weak, that we isolate rather than invite. Like, I don't want that person to see my, that I'm weak. I need to... I need, to, I need to create this facade that I'm strong, that, that I'm not weak, that I don't struggle, that I have it all together. And listen to me, you can isolate yourself even in coming to church. You can isolate yourself even being involved in a life group. You can isolate yourself because you continue to create this facade. But notice, I made mention of it earlier when I read it. Notice that Jesus says to those inner three, my soul is very sorrowful. Jesus could have easily said, I'm not going to tell my disciples how weak I am right now because I don't want to shatter their faith. But he doesn't do that. He's real. He's honest. He invites. He doesn't isolate. We speak to the men here. Men, how, who do you have around you that you can let down the walls and be real with? Oh man, I can't do that. I, gotta, I got people that I lead. I got to create this facade. Even though I'm literally wrecked inside, I have to pretend that everything's okay. Isolating, not inviting. It's a lie of the enemy. It's not a truth of God. Guys, I wonder, when's the last time you've let down your guard with your wife if you're married? Let her in. Let her know that this is what I'm struggling with. This is where I'm weak. This is where I need you to pray for me. Oh, no, I can't do that. I have to be strong for my wife and what we're going through. No, no, no. Wait a minute. 
It's a godly relationship that the Lord has placed in your life to invite, not isolate from. Wives, what about you? Same things. See, here's something we need to understand, that transparency is the currency to intimacy. And we're fed this lie that if we isolate ourselves and always pretend that we're strong and we're never weak, and we always pretend that, oh man, submitting to the will of God and this or that, that's not hard for me. That we have in our minds that, that somehow that's what we're supposed to do, but we don't even see that exemplified by our Savior, who is perfect. Because we miss out on something beautiful when we're transparent. I'm so thankful for the people that God has put in my life that hold me accountable, that ask the tough questions, that ask how are you doing, that really aren't asking it as a greeting, but really want to know how I'm doing. And I have to work at all the time and being honest with that, saying, well, I'm going to say I'm okay when I'm not. But then I'm reminded of what my Savior gave me as an example. No, 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 he didn't isolate, he invited. I want you to be a part of this. See, submission to the will of God is often difficult. And godly relationships help. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12 says this, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who's alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Verse 12, and though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand with him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. God has made us relational creatures. You're like, well, I'm an introvert. You're still relational. I don't care if you're an introvert, extrovert. I don't care if coming up on stage and talking in front of people would literally, you'd rather jump off of a cliff. Every one of us needs relationships because they help, they encourage. Godly relationships help us in times where submitting to the will of God is difficult. Here's the second thing. Let's look at verse 39. And it says, in going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed. Where else in Scripture do you find this transparency of what Jesus was going through? That's why we say it's just such a holy moment. He fell on his face and prayed. And listen to me, there's going to be times where you figuratively or literally fall on your face. Where you don't have the strength to take another step. And you just fall on your face. But what I love is that verse doesn't say Jesus fell on his face and then period. It says he fell on his face and what did he do? And he prayed. See, what you see from Jesus is the example, the perfect example, that prayer is a necessity. See, that's the second truth. Submission to the will of God is often difficult, and prayer is a necessity. Like oxygen to life, prayer is a necessity for us to be obedient to the will of God in our life. When it's difficult or when it's not, prayer 
is a necessity. And so if that's the reality for us, because it's perfectly exemplified in our Savior, and He did it, then how much more should we do it? When we're in these times of difficulty, yet we know what the Lord wants us to do, to submit, to obey, to say, Lord, your will is better than my will. Then we got to ask ourselves, how do we pray? And what I love is Jesus literally tells us. You're like, well, that's the Lord's prayer. But what I love here is we literally see this, this instruction from how Jesus, our Savior, prays. See, here's the first way we pray. We pray to our Heavenly Father. See, this would have been a foreign concept to the disciples and the Jews in the day because to call God Father would have been basically seen as blasphemous because you didn't have a right to do that. See, they would refer to, the, to God as Adonai, as Lord. Like when the scribes would come to the Lord, remember capital L-O-R-D, the Tetragrammaton, Yahweh, remember when we looked at Psalm 23? They would literally, before they penned those words, they would go and they would take a complete bath because that's how much reverence they gave to that name of God. They would have never thought of calling God Father. But Jesus does. And isn't it interesting that passage of Scripture Back in Matthew 6 that you're thinking of, how did Jesus instruct his disciples to pray when the disciples asked him, he said, our Father. See, I wonder when's the last time you just stopped before you uttered a prayer, before you went through your list, before you took your burdens to to God, and you said, Father, and you actually thought about that word. You actually just took time stop and to think, I have no business calling God this. The God of the universe, the holy God who created all things. And I know how sinful I am. And I get to call God Father? Not because of me. Because Jesus submitted himself to the will of the Father all the way to the cross and he was risen three days later so that today when I pray, I can pray and take my burdens and take my struggles and take my sin and I can go to God and start off praying saying, Father. Mark says that Jesus literally cries out, Abba, Father. That Aramaic term that would be the equivalent to our word daddy. And that's not a right that I have. That's not a right that you have. But I can do it with confidence. Not because I have confidence in myself. But I have confidence in what Jesus accomplished for me. And when's the last time we've just stopped? And thought. About that word. That we can call God. See, when we pray, I think there's something that drives home the intimacy of our relationship with God when we call Him Father. Something special about that. Here's the second thing I see He does. He says, my Father, but then He says, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. He prays with transparency. Like, that's how we pray. We pray with transparency. Because in a matter of, 
of hours, Jesus knew that he was going to be betrayed, that he was going to be beaten, that he was going to be flogged, and literally to the point where he would be unrecognizable, that he would stand before Pilate and he would be mocked and the crown of thorns would be thrust on his head and a robe would be thrown around those open wounds of his body, that he would be naked on a cross having being hung there and he would see his mother whom he loved crying and seeing him that way, that he would be separated for the first and only time from God the Father because he was sin for us, like he knew all of that that was the cup and it wasn't a cup of just physical suffering it was a cup that meant that symbolized that when he said this it referred to God's wrath the Old Testament refers often to this cup as symbolizing God's wrath knowing that 2 Corinthians 5 21 him who knew no sin would become sin for us Think about the worst things that you've ever done, not in a self-loathing way, but just think about those things as I think about those things, and those were placed on a sinless Savior. That was the cup that he was asking if it's possible, if there's any other way for humanity, for Johnny, put your name in there, to be saved from his sin. God, if there's any other way, Lord, would you show it to me? You know what the Lord is doing here? The sinless Lamb of God is he's being transparent with his dad. That's what God wants you to be with him. You ever find that you start praying to the Lord and you start acting like you even find yourself pretending with him because you're so used to doing it with everybody else? Yeah, God, thank you for this day and yeah, I got this tough thing going on today, and man, it'd be great if you helped me with it. And inside, you're like loathing and grieving and weak, and you're like, I hate what's going on right now. And you're like, all of a sudden, you stop yourself and wait a minute, wait a minute, I'm praying to the omniscient, all-knowing Father. Why am I pretending? And I love that Jesus doesn't shy away from being transparent. It's not sinful to be transparent. God wants to know that you're angry right now. God wants to know that you can't even lift your head off of the floor. God wants to know that you're struggling. He knows it anyway. And here's what's awesome. On this side of the cross, I just not only have a God who knows it, I have a Savior who's experienced it. Pray to your heavenly Father. Pray transparently. Here's the third thing. He says, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He prays according to God's will. We don't stop at transparency. We don't stop at saying, God, I'm angry at you right now. And end it there. Amen. You see Jesus is transparent, but at the same time he understands, nevertheless, this is how I feel. I'm hoping there's another way, but if there's not, I'm willing to submit to your will. I'm going to pray according to your will. And doing that, I am saying, God, your ways are greater than my ways. God, I'm never going to pray something that's against your word. Remember? God's word is God's will. So you praying about something that you know God's word says not to do, you might as well not pray it anymore. 
Just obey it. God's not going to change his mind on that. See, there's precepts. There's things that we know in God's word that he says do and do not do. There are principles in God's word. Case in point, I'll give one that's an obvious one. There's nothing that says anything about what you should watch and not watch on the internet. Nothing in here. Internet's not on here. Google's not in here. But we have principles that say to be careful of what we put before our eyes. See, that's a principle based on a precept. And you see Jesus here that when he says, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will, he's saying, God, your ways are first place in my life, and I'm never going to pray something that's not in accordance with your will. I'm going to pray it according to God's will. Here's the next thing that I see in this prayer of Jesus. Look at verses 40 through 44. Look at what it says, and it says, and he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. Poor guys, right? It says, and he said to Peter, so you could not watch with me one hour? Like, remember I talked about that whole John and Peter rivalry thing? Like, James and John were probably sleeping. No, we got to say it's Peter. It says, Peter, you could not watch with me one hour. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, and he said this, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. There's that pray according to God's will piece again. Verse 43, and he came and he found them sleeping. Like he goes a third time and they're like out, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went and prayed for the third time, saying, key word, key phrase, saying the same word words again. See, here's another way that I think we pray. We pray with persistence. Remember how I said there's not a greater passage of Scripture that displays Jesus' humanity than this passage of Scripture. Now, here's what you need to understand. Jesus was fully human and Jesus was fully God. And though we can't understand that in our finite minds, one did not contradict the other. You're going to have a million dollar word here, a theological word that you can be like, you can walk out of here and you can sound smarter to the people who are like, what did you learn about church today? Here's the term, fully God, fully man. It's a theological term, hypostatic union. Yeah. You walk out of here and you're like, what did they talk about in church today? They talked about the hypostatic union. Boom. He already thinks your IQ went up 50 points. But that's the theological term, that Jesus was fully God and fully man. And in this passage of Scripture, you see his humanity put on display and how it does not contradict his deity. But three times he prays virtually the same thing, which tells me God's okay with me being persistent in my prayers. How many of you are like me? And your kid's persistence drives you nuts. Anybody? Don't leave me up here alone. Right? They get something on their mind and they just ask. Like, Dad, can I, can I get this? How much money do you have? X number of dollars. A day later, can I get this, Dad? Did you make any more money? <laughs> no. Then you had my answer yesterday. But you ever say, Dad, can I do this? Can I do that? Mom, can I do this? Can I do that? And what do you just, what do you so often say? Stop asking me. My answer was the same five minutes ago. But what I love 
is that we never find in the scriptures where God is annoyed with our persistence. It's not there. When we're praying according to his will, it's never there. And Jesus shows us that in that phrase that we find there in verse 44 where it says, saying the same words again. Listen to me. Here's what you need to understand. That prayer is not just about what you want God to change, but it's also about what he wants to do in you. It's not just about the prayer. It's also about the prayer. And here we find Jesus' soul being ministered to as he prays. He's not wrong for praying if there's another way possible, or he wouldn't be God. But in his humanity, he's teaching us that it's okay to pray with persistence because God is working not just in the prayer being answered, but in the prayer who's asking. And that leads me to the last thing of how we pray under this passage in verses 40 through 44. Pray expecting an answer. Pray expecting an answer. Now though God the Father does not literally answer out loud to Jesus, Jesus is confident of what the answer is because you even see how his progressions in these requests change in the first time he prays he says if it's possible let this cup pass from me but then in the second prayer it's a little bit different he says my father if this cannot pass so he seems to be seeing that this is there's not another way unless i drink it your will be done matthew 7 7 and 8 says ask and it will be given you seek and you shall find knock and it will be opened." but notice it doesn't say the way that you wanted i wish it said that in the greek but it doesn't But there is a promise that it will be opened. And when we pray expecting an answer, we do so in an attitude of submission. That's why we say submission to the will of God, even when it's difficult, that prayer is a necessity. Listen to me. I look back on my life, and I've only lived on this earth for 40 years But I am so thankful as I look back to some key things in my life that I'm so thankful God said no. I'm so thankful for the breakups that God said no. Every husband, I just gave you a softball for you to knock out of the park just there. So thankful. I can look at other things that I prayed so diligently on that I had a list and I was on my knees and I was praying out loud on my face before God. God, would you do this? And God said no. And I have enough insight to be able to look back and to be able to say, God, thank you for saying no in that. Pray expecting an answer because you don't see anywhere else in this passage of Scripture that once Jesus, in these verses that we're about to finish out on, that Jesus gets up and he is resolved because he knows what his Father has said. And some of us know what God wants us to do. We don't need to pray about it anymore. We know what he wants us to do. And now our responsibility is submit to it. 
to be obedient to it. See, here's the third principle, and it's found in verses 45 through 56, and we'll be done. Submission to the will of God is often difficult, and trust in his plan more than people is pivotal. Like, wait a minute, I thought you said godly relationships help. They do. But trust in his plan more than people is pivotal. Here's why I say that. Look at verse 45. It says, then he came to his disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinner. Like, even as much as he brought Peter and James and John along with him to watch and pray with him, they still couldn't be for him what his father was. Verse 46, he says, rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Do you see Jesus' resolve there? He knows what God's answer is. He's trusting in his plan. See, obedience is rooted in trust. Submission to the will of God is rooted in trust. Trust in the Lord's plan. Jesus' confidence and trust in the Lord's plan overrides his sorrow and sadness and grief that is described in this passage of Scripture. Look at verse 47. It says, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with sword and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. So evidently, these chief priests and elders, they gather every motley individual they can find to be their entourage. In verse 48, it says, Now the betrayer had given them a sign. So this is Judas saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. Listen to this language. Verse 49, And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. Just think about that. Face to face. Jesus is fully human and fully God, and that does not mean that Jesus was not heard in this moment. And it says that he, Judas, kissed him. Now here's what you need to understand is kissing was, an, was, a, was a greeting, but you could kiss on the hand if you didn't know someone super well, but a kiss on the cheek was a sign of close affection and love reserved only for those with whom one had a close relationship with. So even the kiss on the cheek that Judas does, like literally, is a sign of, man, I really love you. Like it was just literally a figurative slap in Jesus' face. And look at what Jesus says to him. Friend, (laughs) friend, do what you came to do. Like this is what sticks out to me in these two verses, that trust in God's plan for your life more than people is pivotal, pivotal. Because here's the reality. Nothing grows you more and your submission to the will of the Father and your trust in Him that when you feel betrayed. And if you haven't yet, you will. It says, Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized Him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out His hand and drew His sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off His ear. Well, thank you, John. You didn't mention Peter in this. 
uh, verse 52, then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Look at Jesus, what, look at what he says. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Do you not think that I have the power to stop this if I wanted? Do you not think that I struggled to ask? I just asked the Lord, Lord, if there's another way, would you let it happen? But God said no, so I'm submitting to his will and I'm trusting in his plan more than people in my life and that is pivotal. pivotal. And so Jesus tells Peter, Peter, put away your sword. This is what God wants. It's his plan. Verse 54, but then how should the scriptures be fulfilled? Once again, the word of God is the will of God that it must be so. And at the hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. There it is again. And look at this. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Listen, in no way am I trying to end this message saying you need to be cynical and not trust any of your godly relationships. If that was the case, that would have totally derailed everything that we said before. Here's the point. My trust in God's plan ought always to trump and be higher than my trust in people. Because we're all sinners and we're all going to fail one another from time to time. His disciples didn't mean to leave Jesus alone in the garden. They had good intentions to pray with him. But, but they were tired. They were human. But it's trust in his plan. See, Jesus in Hebrews 12 too, it says, Looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. The reason that the Lord was able to trust in God's plan is because he knew that God the Father's plan is always best, even in the moment when it's painful, even in the process when it's painful, that God knows what he's doing better than even we know. And whatever is going on in our life in the moment that may be painful and hard to submit to, we need to trust that God knows what he's doing. Proverbs 18, 24 says, there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. I love my wife. I love my friends. I love the people that God has put around me that will ask me tough questions when I need to be asked them, will ask me how I'm really doing but they're not a greater friend than Jesus. Jesus ought to be the one that you're ultimately trusting in. And you know what I love when, I, when we finish up this passage of Scripture here in Matthew 26? Is that when we walk out of those doors, we cannot say to the Lord, we cannot say to our Savior, you don't know what I'm going through. You don't know what it's like. You don't know what I'm having to endure. You don't know what I'm being asked to submit to. I can't say that and neither can you. And that's such an awesome thing because I can go to the Lord knowing he knows what it's like. See, I'll never know what it's like to experience the crushing weight of what Jesus experienced. I can't know that. But Jesus can identify with what I'm struggling with. What's he asking you to submit to? 
What is that? Because what I've found is I can't look to a person, I can't look to a thing, I look to my Savior as the example of what submission looks like. So that as I'm walking on this road in my relationship with the Lord, I can say, Lord, it is well with my soul. 